Uh, our text today is in 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22 to the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So this is 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter tells us, gives us three pieces of information about the audience he's addressing here in verse 22. He tells us that they have purified their souls. He tells us how they purified them. And he also tells us why. So I want to talk about each of those, not necessarily in the order that I just laid out. I've noticed that for some Christians, the word purity is difficult because they associate purity with legalism and shaming and humiliation. There's a, an old book by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I've never actually read the book. I've studied it a little bit, oddly enough. The Scarlet Letter. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. It takes place in the 17th century, Massachusetts, in the Puritan era. So you have this group of Puritans who take morality very seriously, and there's a woman in the community who has a child out of wedlock. And they brand her an adulteress, they publicly humiliate her, they shun her and they force her to wear a big scarlet A as a testimony to her sexual immorality. And some people, they think, all right, well, if you start to get serious about purity and you start to get serious about holiness, that's the direction that you're heading in. And like a lot of people, I don't want to go there. And I'm sure many Christians, they don't want to go there. So what do we do? Well, let's compare that story, which is fictional history, with a piece of actual history from John's Gospel, chapter 8. And we'll ask the question, well, how does Jesus respond when he encounters a woman who is caught in the act of adultery? And this is a story I'm sure many of you are familiar with. I'm not going to read the text, but it's John chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8. The authorities bring the woman to Jesus. They want to stone her to death. Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. They leave one by one and he's left with the woman. Now what does Jesus do at this point? Does he humiliate her? Does he shame her? Does he define her by the mistake she made? Does he say, this is who you are, sorry? That's not what he does, right? He forgives her. He shows her 
compassion. And then he calls her to repentance. Go and sin no more. And those last words are really important because they show us that Jesus is not excusing her. He's forgiving her. There's a big difference. Forgiveness can only take place when a wrong has been done. So this is not Jesus saying, Ah, adultery is not that big of a deal. Sexual morality is not a big deal. No. Jesus said, what you did was wrong. And I I don't want you to do that anymore. But he doesn't identify her with her mistake. He doesn't define her by her mistake. And so he gives her hope. And he leaves us an example to follow, right, as Christians. One that we should be all the more eager to follow because unlike Jesus, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the solution to this pitfall is not to abandon the whole idea, ideal of purity. That is not what God's will is for us. And we know this because we have Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I want to read just a portion of it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's writing to these Christians in Thessalonica. And beginning with verse 3 in chapter 4, he writes this. For this is the will of God. So let's just stop right there. How often do you hear people say, I want to know what God's will is for my life? Well, we're going to read it. You can have the answer right now. This is is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what God wants. Sanctification is purity. Sanctification is holiness. This is God's will for your life. Notice he doesn't say God's will for your life is to have a good time all the time. Now, I like to have a good time. And I like to have fun. But I get concerned when I talk to Christians who seem like they put fun at a higher priority than sanctification. That is not okay. We live in a fallen world. If you make fun your top priority, what happens when suffering comes? Your life collapses because you built it on a foundation of sand. So God's will is our sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Look at the language Paul is using here. By the way, we realize he's talking to Christians. He's addressing people who have been saved... And he's telling them, we warned you, don't you wrong your brother or sister in Christ. Because God is what? He's an avenger. That's not a Marvel superhero term here. That's saying that God, when he sees a wrong, is going to right the wrong. That's what avenger means. Now, of course, so if I wrong my brother in Christ, God's going to right that wrong, not because he doesn't care about me, but because he does. And he cares about how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's very strong language he's using there. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul knows better than anybody, we are saved by grace through faith. And he is not saying we purchase our salvation with purity or righteousness or good works. Redemption precedes holiness. 
we are redeemed, and then out of our redemption comes the call to sanctification, which God wants us to respond to. And our motivation is very important along these lines, because if we have the wrong motivation, that's where people get derailed really quickly. I don't know if you remember this, but at the beginning of the 21st century, there was a huge purity movement that swept through the church. And ironically enough, it was kind of spearheaded by books like uh, Joshua Harris's I Kiss Hating Goodbye. And I'm sure many of you are, you know, you know about the controversy he's been embroiled in, but he wasn't alone. Like, they had programs, they had pledges, they had purity rings. Does anybody remember the purity ring? They were getting really serious about this stuff. And I remember I was working as a youth pastor at a time, at the time here at Emmanuel. A woman calls me up on the phone who I don't know at all, doesn't go to the church, has a daughter who doesn't go to the youth group, and she calls me and says, I want to know when you're teaching about purity. Because my daughter, I want her to go to youth group on those weeks that you're teaching about purity. Now, I understand, I think, where this woman's coming from, because I have two daughters, and I want them to make healthy choices. I want them to get pregnant before they're married. But what I want more is for them to know God. What I want... uh I think I'd start crying here. What I, what I want more is for them to walk the Lord. And look at the motivation. Peter says, you guys have purified yourselves. Why did they do it? Did they do it to show how much better they were than other people? Did they do it for praise and admiration? No. He says, here's the motivation in verse 22. For a sincere, and that word translated sincere literally means unhypocritical. For an unhypocritical brotherly love the motivation for holiness is to love my brothers and sisters in Christ better to love them more it's not self-centered it's others centered and that's so important because if I find that I'm loving myself more and loving my neighbor less I am not pursuing holiness I am pursuing self-righteousness And that's what got the Pharisees in trouble. And the Pharisees couldn't stand to be around people who made big mistakes. Because in their mind, oh, that's what purity is, right? If I'm holy, that means I can't stand to be around people who make mistakes. But is that what Jesus did? Jesus hung out with people who made big mistakes. He loved on people who made big mistakes. He fellowshiped with them. And again, that's the example that He has set for us. And that's the motivation. I pursue purity and holiness so I can love my brothers and sisters sincerely. So how did they do this? These Christians that Peter is writing to, how did they purify their souls? He tells us in verse 22. By your obedience to the truth. Let's go to the book of James. Right next to the book of Peter. It comes right before 1 Peter, James. Chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no uh, hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He's telling us that truth cannot be treated just like facts that we store in our memory. doesn't work that way. Why? Because you'll deceive yourself. Remember, those are the words he uses there. He says, you are deceiving yourself if you treat truth like it's just information. It's got to sink into the heart. It's got to sink into the will in order to be blessed by the truth. And these Christians, Peter's referring to, when he says they have purified their souls, I imagine what he's referring to is their conversion to Christianity from paganism. Now, as I understand it, some of Peter's audience may have been Jews who converted to Christianity, but I've been told that the majority of them were Gentiles, which means they were pagans. Now, converting to Christianity from paganism is very different from what many of us experience. Uh, many of us, we were raised in a Christian home, right? Many of you accepted Jesus at a very young age, and you put your faith in Him as a child, and you've been walking with Him your whole life, praise God. And there's people like me who are a little bit more stubborn. I was raised in a Christian home, and I went to Sunday school, and I went to VBS, and I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I memorized scripture, and I didn't know God. And by the time I was a young man, I began to doubt that God even existed. But I eventually came to faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and my background helped me. That Christian background did provide a foundation. Well, if you're a pagan, it's a totally different story. And remember, Christians are not the big kid on the block. The pagans are the big kids. On the, they are a minority group. And some of these Christians Peter is writing to, he's writing to rural areas. If you look at the beginning of First Peter and you look at the regions he lists, like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, these are not cities, they're regions, right? Paul, when he was writing, oftentimes he wrote to big cities, Christians living in big cities. Peter is addressing Christians who are living in probably more rural, small town type settings. And you live in a small town that's mostly pagan and you convert to Christianity? That's going to be tough. Because there's certain things you are going to have to give up right away, like idolatry. You can't just gradually let go of that one. I mean, you convert to Christianity, you've got to stop worshiping idols because they're false gods. You couldn't participate in the pagan culture, in the pagan ceremonies, the rituals, the sexual immorality that goes with all of it. These Christians understood the implications of the gospel, and they responded. They were redeemed by God's grace. They received the word of truth, and then they understood, okay, this means paganism is gone. And I think that's what Peter's talking about when he says they have purified their souls. He doesn't mean that they're perfect, because the instructions he gives in verse... One of chapter 2 would make no sense if they were perfect. Verse 23 in 1 Peter, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah. And this is one of the most important verses in Scripture, I think, for us in modern day America. Because you live in America and you reach a certain comfort level, like a lot of people do, a lot of people outside the church, and you stop thinking about the fact that you're going to die. 
I mean, even us within the church, we don't think about the fact that we're going to die, but you're going to die. Unless you're here when Jesus comes back, you're going to die. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so the question is, am I going to align my hopes and dreams and ambitions accordingly? According to what is perishable or according to what is imperishable? And I fully agree with the Christian apologists who say that, you know what? Without God, there is no ultimate meaning and purpose to this life that we're living. You've got to have something eternal to build a foundation on. And some people respond, well, I know people who don't know God and they find meaning in their work and they find meaning in relationships and the music they listen to. Yeah, well, you're talking about feelings. I'm talking about ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning. You've got to have the living and abiding Word of God to build your life on. And that's what we're supposed to be focused on. And he says to these Christians, this Word is the good news that was preached to you. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he starts talking about the implications, more implications of what it means now to live out this gift that you've been given. And he gives us a list. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There are many lists like this in the New Testament where you find a series of vices that are named off one by one. And I have to confess, oftentimes when I'm reading the Bible and I come across this list, I just read through it and what I take away is, yeah, don't do bad stuff. I get it. Like there's a lot of bad stuff, don't do any of it. But when you're preparing a sermon, you've got to pay more attention. So, let's take a look at these words. Let's take a look at the list. What's he talking about? Uh, so put away all malice. What is malice? Malice is wrongful intention. It's when you intend to do somebody harm, you intend to do somebody wrong. That's malice. And obviously that's going to undermine the solidarity of the Christian family. And one thing that Peter really emphasizes in his letter is the church as God's household. He really emphasizes you are brothers, you are sisters, you are family. And you don't want to have malice towards the people in your family because it's going to undermine what God is trying to do. You need to put it away. He mentions deceit. I was reading a book written by a pastor some time ago in which he talked about his early years of ministry. And he referred to something called, I think, the royal use of we. <laughs> And here's what he was talking about. As a pastor, astonishingly enough, sometimes people would complain to him. And when they would come and complain to him, they would say, we don't like what you're doing. Like there's a big group of people who've got a problem with you. And he found out that we is actually me. It was oftentimes like one or maybe two people because your spouse has to agree with you, right? And... That is deception. Like that, It's so silly that Christians of all people would engage in that kind of behavior because that is so manipulative. At that point, what you're trying to do is you're trying to control. You're trying to dominate. And he's saying we've got to put that kind of deceit behind us because, again, it produces mistrust. Then he mentions hypocrisy. You know, at the men's breakfast, 
we talked about hypocrisy uh, just recently in conjunction with the nuns, uh, people who have no religious affiliation. And one of the excuses that nuns come up with when they talk about why they're not Christian is they say, well, there's just so much hypocrisy in the church. Hypocrisy is a big problem. And I agree there is hypocrisy in the church. We do need to be a little bit careful how we define that word. Hypocrisy should not be made synonymous with imperfect. And sometimes it is. I'll hear people say things like, well, as Christians, we're all of us hypocrites. Okay, wait just a minute. Let's think about that. There's nothing hypocritical about saying I have a goal. I want to be like Jesus. As long as I say I haven't reached the goal yet. Like I mess up. I still blow it. I still lose my temper. I don't always treat people with perfect fairness and perfect mercy. But if I admit that, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm just saying I'm imperfect. And by the way, it should be obvious, that kind of uh, imperfection is not going to drive people away from the church. I don't think people are going to be put off by Christians who sincerely say, hey, guess what, we're imperfect, we need the mercy of God. If anything, that's probably going to attract people to the church. But there is a kind of hypocrisy that does repel people. And I think Dr. William Lane Craig, he's a Christian apologist and writer, describes it well in his testimony. He wasn't raised in a Christian household. And when he got to be a teenager, he wanted to start looking for answers. And so one of the places you go to for answers is church, right? And he writes about the experience he had when he finally went to church. I began to attend a large church in our community, but instead of answers, all I found was a social country club where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate. The other high school students who were involved in the youth group and claimed to be Christians on Sunday lived, um, who claimed to be Christians on Sunday, lived for their real God the rest of the week, which was popularity. They seemed willing to do whatever it took to be popular. That's the kind of hypocrisy that turns people off. It's when they, when they look at our lives and they say, okay, the real driving force in your life Ain't God. It's popularity, it's success, it's money, it's sex, whatever it is, but it's not God. And when people see that, that that's what really drives us and motivates us and what we live for during the week, that's going to turn them off because they're coming here because they need salt, they need light, they need the Word. And they want to be in the company of people who take that seriously, though we are imperfect, admittedly. So we need to put hypocrisy away. And then Peter talks about envy. Envy is resenting people because of who they are or what they have. So someone who is better than me at something, someone who has something I want, envy comes in the door. And it quickly degenerates into things like hatred. And before you know it, you find yourself in a position where you want to see people fail just because you envy them. And then finally... He mentions slander. Now I'm always embarrassed. Now that Dr. Craig is here, I'm always embarrassed when I start talking about the Greek because I've read like Learn New Testament Greek, a book for beginners, and I know that you know <laughs> I'm not trying to pretend like I'm an expert here. But when I was studying Greek as much as I've done it, I, I found out um, this word that's translated devil in our Bible is uh, diabolus, and you can hear 
you know, Diabolus, diabolical, devil, makes sense, right? But what really opened my eyes is when I saw that in my Greek dictionary, that word literally translated to slanderer. That's what the word devil literally means. Now that's significant because, okay, in modern times when we're naming our children, we don't try to define their essence when we're naming them, right? So parents, they try to come up with something that's original but not too weird. Or some parents don't care. They just go for original. Here's my son, Super Galacticus Enormicus Dinosaurus Jr. And, oh, oh, congratulations. No one else named their kid that. And your kid's going to be humiliated for the rest of his life. But thank you. In the Bible, when people talk about the names of God, or they talk about the names of angels, or in this case, the name of the devil, that name tells you something about who that person is. And what Scripture is saying is that's who the devil is. He's a backbiter. He's a slanderer. He's an accuser. He's a gossip. That's his character. Now, you could be saved. You could be a born-again Christian with your name written on every street in gold in the New Jerusalem. When you gossip, you're not doing God's work. When we slander each other, we're not doing God's work. We're doing the work of the adversary. And for obvious reasons, this is going to create tension and schism in the household of God. And so uh, one Christian uh, put it, you know, if we, if we prayed for one another as much as we gossiped about one another, the Holy Spirit would be doing incredible work in our churches these days. Um, so those are the negative injunctions or commands. And then verse 2, he gives us a, pos- a more positive type of command or injunction. He says... Like newborn infants. Now that suggests that the Christians he's writing to are new converts. Maybe. Um, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now I have a newborn infant in my house right now. A beautiful, fat, three-month baby boy. And he longs for milk. That boy loves, loves him some milk. Uh, he wakes up two or three times a night to remind his mom how much he likes milk. Uh, and I don't think that was a mistake, Paul using this analogy, saying as Christians, you should long for that kind of nourishment. Uh, if my son ate once a week, he would not survive. Peter's saying you've got to nourish yourselves. You've got to have a devotional life in place. You've got to be feeding on the imperishable word of truth. And church, I mean, you can think of that as a sacrifice if you want to, but do you think it's a sacrifice to eat? Or do you see that you get a benefit from that, right? And so carving out time for God each day, by not doing that, you're just cheating yourself out of a blessing is what you're doing. It shouldn't be really considered a sacrifice. It should be considered, hey, I want to get blessed. Now, Does that mean if you have a devotional life that you'll never have problems? No. Uh, You're going to have trouble. Uh, In fact, Jesus promised us that he would be a liar if we didn't have trouble because he promised us we would have trouble. So having a devotional life doesn't get rid of your problems. What it does is changes the way you respond to those problems. And I remember as a teacher, that's my day job, um, Sometimes before class, I would pray for my classes, and what I would pray is things like, okay, God, I just pray that my students would just listen to me today. 
And I pray that they would just follow instructions and just do what I tell them to do for once. And, you know, basically what I was praying without knowing it is, God, I don't want any problems. Can you please just give me a problem-free life? And God would say, no. And I, I would pray that repeatedly, and we keep saying no. And I was like, okay, well, what's the problem here? And it's like Jesus told us in this life you're going to have trouble. So stop asking for a trouble-free life. And I, I began to realize that what I needed to pray was, okay, God, regardless of how my students treat me today, I pray that I will just love them. I, I, uh, you know, I, I pray that I will glorify your name in how I respond to the troubles. And that prayer gets heard because that's more in line with what God wants us to learn in this world. And so he tells these Christians, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted that he's good, I promise you, you're going to come back for more. Um, if you haven't, this is the perfect time to do it. Uh, so I'm going to pray. I'll, I guess I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Or is it, uh, who's praying for our, I think we actually did the invitation song during the worship set. So I'll, I'll pray and then Jim, you can come up and pray for our offering. All right. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity you have to meet in your house and to worship together and to read from the scriptures. And we pray that we will respond to your call for sanctification in our lives. We pray that we will um, not use that to build our own egos, but we'll use that as a call to love each other better. And we thank you for the gift of your grace and your mercy over our lives. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us, both spiritual and physical. As we leave this place today, we pray that you will walk with us, Lord. That we will walk with you. And that we will be witnesses to what your truth is, especially to people who do not know who you are. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.